I'm Linda Pepper, and I think I'm a member here, but I'm not quite sure if I pushed the right button when I did it over the internet, and I haven't checked yet. Probably like lots of you, but we must. We've got to try again. We've got to make sure that we are signed up members. Uh, Dave and I have been part of this church fellowship now for a really long time. And it is a real joy to be able to take some time today to share with you some thoughts that I've been thinking about over the last little while on this subject of who do you think you are? Confession, good for the soul. How many people watch this program? Occasionally, is the truth. I watch it occasionally. I did actually... Oops, a daisy, I've gone the wrong way. Just bear with me a moment. Have I fudged it up altogether? Okay, there we are. I asked for the clicker at the front. I'm not sure I'm really in control. No, the clicker at the front's not really working. I tell you what, I'll just shout which slide I'm on. How does that sound? And you can move it forward. That might be a really good idea. Me and technology, it's not so good. You wouldn't really think I worked with students all of the time, would you? Because I'm not good at this malarkey, but never mind. Who do you think you are? I watched this program when Billy Connolly was on there. Billy Connolly, as we know, is fiercely Scottish. He spends his whole life proclaiming how fantastic Scotland is. He explores his accent in every way when it comes to making jokes. He loves being Scottish. Except, actually, he's Indian. Well, at least his heritage is. That's what he discovered. And you could have knocked him down with a feather. He was so surprised that his grandparents actually, or great-grandparents, came from India. And that actually he's only a little bit Scottish, really. Who do we think we are? Next slide. The question is all about our identity. Where do I come from? Where do I belong? What makes me who I am? Am I happy with who I am. They're questions that come down to whether we really understand our significance in the world, our security and our place in the world, and our satisfaction within the world. Who are we? Where do we fit in? The book of Ephesians gives us some fantastic answers to these questions. This is a book that I use a lot with people who are not yet Christians and with people who are Christians because for many of us, we have the same questions. We are constantly wondering if we are good enough. We are constantly wondering if we really fit into some great cosmic plan. We are constantly wondering if our friends really love us enough or if we love our friends enough. Are we all that we can be? And the answer most of the time is no. But we're going to look this morning at what the book of Ephesians 
tells us that we can then hold on to and take away and hopefully really build on as we maybe read the whole of the book of Ephesians in the week that we have ahead. We all know people, and I'm sure for many of us we have been in this place, where we have been absolutely full of despair and feeling completely lost. Those days of the week when everything about our lives seems to be going wrong. People at work seem to hate us. Our families are just full of argument and strife. There's no money in our bank balance and it's raining. Everything is wrong with our life. Do we still matter at those, on those days? Do we still count when we have been sacked from our work? Do we still count when nobody seems to want us? We've put ourselves up for something and we've been told, no, we, all we feel is rejection. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, which is on the next slide, talks about how God feels about us. Paul says, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. What does it mean to be called? Calling works in a couple of different ways. In one way, God has called the whole of the world to know him. God says clearly through the book of Romans that nobody has an excuse, that God is present in the world in such a way that everybody can find him if they want to. If they seek him, they will begin to understand that God is real. That's there in the book of Romans. But there is also this sense of being called together as a group of individuals and called individually to know who God is. Paul is speaking to a group of people who had come together in Ephesus in order to worship God and to discover more about him. They had been called by God in a particular way. Think about ways in which you might get called on any given week. You might get a text from a friend. You might get that very rare commodity these days, a phone call. Somebody might actually call you up because they want to talk to you. Every time we are called, we have a choice of responses. Let me show you a picture coming next. This person is very special to me. This is a person who I grew up with. This is my mum. Forgive me if this doesn't work for you, but just use your imagination. I grew up in a very quiet little village called Aberbargoid in the Rumney Valley in South Wales. I'm not that old, but when I grew up, there weren't that many cars around. And I lived on a side street, and to be honest, the side street was our playground because the number of cars that actually came up that street on any given day were few and far between. So me and all the rest of the children on the street would play. 
And in those days, which again isn't quite so long ago, but long enough, the concept was that we were safe. Children were safe. Children could play, and they didn't actually need to have their parents with them all the time. So from quite a young age, we would play hide-and-seek around the street and around the garages and up the trees, and it was fun. But there was a time, possibly twice on each day, when you would hear the mothers shout. My mother, I've got a loud voice, my mother is blessed with a really loud voice. And so my brother and I would be somewhere in the street and you would hear these calls going out. Mrs. Edwards would be saying, Anthony! Anthony! My mother. Mark! Linda! Dinner time! There was a call. And the call went out, up and down the street, round and round the garages. And... There was always a choice about what you would do. Next slide. Sometimes I simply did not want to hear that call. Sometimes I was so caught up in my game, I heard the call and I just wanted to carry on playing. I didn't want to have to stop. Sometimes I couldn't actually hear it at all. I just, it was as if I was in another world altogether. It was as if the call didn't happen. But most of the time, I heard the call and I went towards the call because I knew that dinner was waiting for me when I got there. God's call goes out to all of the world, but so much of the world chooses to ignore it. The world is caught up in everything else, and so God doesn't get a moment. Maybe when a crisis hits, people are willing to think about God. Maybe when something absolutely wonderful happens, people might have the opportunity to think about God. And sometimes, and this is the case for so many of our families, They know about God because we tell them all of the time. They know that God is real because of our experience, but they choose not to listen anyway. They choose to ignore him as a possibility. The fact that you're here today, the fact that you ever go to church at any time ever means that you are putting yourself in a place where you can actually hear the call of God. And you can hear some of the answers that he gives to this question of our identity. Let's look at the next slide. And at the same time, if you could open your Bibles again to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look this time at the beginning of chapter 2. Dave read to us the kind of introduction and established where we are as people before God. But let me read to you a little from Ephesians chapter 2, and it's just the first five verses. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. 
You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. My mother-in-law is a really good gardener. She's now becoming quite elderly. She will be 87 this year, but she still lives on her own. And she has compassion for plants. I don't. I love gardening. But I like things that look really healthy. So when a plant looks dead, I consign it really quickly to the compost heap. My mother on, my mother-in-law, on the other hand, she takes a plant that looks sick and bedraddled and what I would say was dead, and she somehow manages to resuscitate it. She breathes new life into that plant and so often that plant then begins to flourish. My problem is I have no patience with the plant world. I don't really have a lot of patience. Generally Dave is thinking as he's sitting there but I don't have so much patience with plants. I give up on them really quickly. Isn't it good that these verses describe a God who is so much more like my mother-in-law than like me. God has incredible patience with people who are actually dead already in his eyes. Being dead means being someone who doesn't acknowledge God. It means someone who is living life as if God doesn't exist at all. Being dead is not physically being immobile, but it is as if we are blind, as if we are deaf, as if there is nothing in this world beyond ourselves. That's what is meant by being dead. And yet God takes these dead people and God amazingly transforms them. God breathes into dead people with his Holy Spirit. God calls to these dead people and gives them life. That makes us significant. This is one of the answers that we've said we are all looking for when it comes to our identity. We are looking to being significant. Significant to someone. Significant for something. And God doesn't give jobs to people who are insignificant. God takes us when we are nobodies and he chooses us for a purpose. We all have a purpose in God's great economy. We all have one job to do and that job is to share God with those around us. 
in our homes and in our places of work, with our neighbours and in our streets, in our flats and through our texts. God wants us to share him. That is the purpose that we have all been called for. And then he chooses to use us in all sorts of different ways as we do it. God gives us purpose. It's the exact opposite of what concentration camp people did to the inmates. Prisoners of war, we are told or we read, were often given given absolutely meaningless tasks, like moving one block of bricks from place A to place B and then moving them back again with no purpose whatsoever. The point of the exercise was to try and break down the prisoners' morale. It was trying to say to them, you are worth nothing. And sometimes we do hear other people saying exactly that to us. We hear others who take away any sense that we have of being significant because they treat us as if we are nothing. Because we feel insignificant in their eyes. But God says, don't accept that. Don't believe what is a lie. You are so significant to me that I sent my son to die for you. You are so significant to me that I have changed everything about you. And I want to keep on changing everything about you. Significance is one part of the story of our identity. The next one is security. Don't you just, next slide, want to be secure? So many of our relationships break down because we don't trust the other people who are involved. If we have had the privilege of being married and then we have seen that relationship crumble so often, it is because distrust comes in place of trust. Because you can't be secure in that relationship anymore. Some of us come from families where there has been no security as well. Parents are supposed to provide for their children. Parents are supposed to enjoy their children. Parents are supposed to love and care for their children. That is part of the contract of being a parent, but so many parents fail. So many of us as parents fail. So many children grow up without that sense of security. But God says we are members of his family. He takes away that which hurts us and replaces it with something which should be good. The church becomes the family to replace the family that has let us down, or or so it should. The church becomes that through which we grow together as God's holy temple. The place where God, through his spirit, dwells in us individually and in us together. God 
wants us to discover deeper security in him. That's what this book of Ephesians tells us. One of the things about growing up in a secure family is that you know that whatever happens to you, there will always be somebody who cares. It doesn't matter what time of day or night you have an emergency. You can always pick up the phone and call. It might be friends who replace that kind of security for us, but think about those people who we know who offer us that open acceptance that says, you can come to me whenever you want to, and I will always try and help you. That's what the marriage contact talks about. God goes further. God says, you can have complete access to me through Christ all of the time, even when you just can't phone somebody else. Maybe at three o'clock in the morning, when even our very, very, very best friends in the whole wide world might not be so keen to hear from us. Even then, we can call out to God. Even then, he is there. Even when we are in the darkest, darkest place, God is there. And God gives us access to him. And God says, talk to me. Because I am waiting to hear from him, from you. God gives us security. And then what about that whole concept of knowing satisfaction? There are days when I wake up and I am just, I'm just a happy little bunny really. I go downstairs, I look around and I think, oh, I really like my house. I really like my family. I really like my food today. I really like what I'm doing. Great. Unfortunately, there are other days. I wake up and as soon as I wake up, I'm in a bad mood. And I don't know why, because in all honesty, nothing happened when I was asleep. But I wake up and I think, oh... I don't want to do that today. This house is so small. It needs decorating so badly. Everything's so untidy. Why can't anybody else do anything around here? Why is it always down to me, me, me? There are so many days when I lack satisfaction with who I am, with what I have. I'm just not happy. Why? God says... There are things in this life that give transient satisfaction, but there is something that actually replaces anything that is transient. God says, I love you so much, and I want you to understand my love for you so much that instead of looking at these things that pass and these people who fade and these relationships that change, you will look to me. You will look to me for love that is wider and deeper and longer and more lasting than any other love you can ever imagine. Yesterday, 
was Valentine's Day. I am not going to ask how many people in this room received cards or gifts for Valentine's Day, but Valentine's Day has become an enormous commercial thing, hasn't it? It's kind of become that unless you take part in this day, then actually you are missing out. Well, what a lot of hogwash that is. More of the world does not take part in in Valentine's Day than those of the world who do. Valentine's Day is supposed to be about declaring your love for somebody else. For God, every day is Valentine's Day. And the subject of his Valentine's card would always be us with our name written inside it. He would always want to assure us of his care for us. He always wants us to understand that he loves us. Let me read these verses with you. Chapter 3 and verses 16 to 19, Paul says, I pray that from God's glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with strength through his spirit so that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him and so that your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong and so that we will know the love of Christ that's too great to understand fully. God wants us to know how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. There is no way around it. There is nowhere we can go where that love does not follow us. When we accept that, we begin to understand a deeper level of satisfaction than the level of contentment I was talking about earlier on. I can be discontent and yet still be completely satisfied. And that's what we can know if we believe in God as our Father and if we trust in Him. I am not saying that if we become a Christian, our life will be one of eternal bliss. Because it's not true. Becoming a Christian doesn't guarantee that anything in terms of our earthly life will change. But it does guarantee that our perspective on our earthly life should change. It does guarantee that we have an eternal concept in our hearts rather than simply a temporal one. God wants to give us significance, security, and satisfaction. And we can find out more about it as we read his word for ourselves. And as we share together all that God does for us each week. Amen.